All right, you guys can get your worship guides out and follow along. This will be uh, another one of those note-taking uh, messages because we believe note-takers are. Come on, let's say that like we mean it. Note-takers are. Amen. So you're just going to learn a lot, you know, when you, uh, when you record and you write things down, and, and, and I believe you're going to get blessed from this. So we're in a series, for those of you who are new and kind of catch it up, um, entitled David, the Warrior King. And basically the, the idea quickly is that there's greatness in each and every one of us. There is greatness in each and every one of you. And each message is really an attempt to bring that greatness out of you. When I was a young man, I had somebody, and this may be a word you're not familiar with, prophesy over me, kind of spoke something over me. When I was an incredibly insecure, young, uh, you know, timid, uh, fear of man, uh, didn't know my purpose, but he spoke something to me. He said, there's greatness inside of you, Derek. And he said, he called it a greatness grenade. And he said, it's going it's to impl- explode inside of you, and God's going to use you in a mighty way. Well, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't see that at that particular time. And sometimes you don't see that there is a greatness grenade in each and every one of you. And what I'm trying to do in this series is pull the pin on that grenade. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, come on, somebody. Because <laughs> you all have it inside of you. And it's not the same kind of greatness that you see in the world today where it's just like, uh, you know, secular success and uh, the trappings of success and all of that. No, I'm talking about God has designed you not for mediocrity. God has not designed any person for mediocrity. He's designed all of you to do something great in a particular lane. In fact, that's what today people are over at a class right now across the street in one of our other buildings uh, discovering what their purpose is, what their design is to figure out what they were created to. God has something great for each and every one of you. You were actually, according to the word of God, called to be kings and priests. That doesn't mean you're better than anybody. It just means you're better off because you know somebody who makes a nobody a somebody, and that name is Jesus. And so when you know him, he puts this greatness inside of you. And so through relationship with him, you come to discover what he wants to do in and through you. So you are, 1 Peter 2.9 says, a, a peculiar people, a holy nation. And he wants to show something out of you. Show forth the praises of him who called you out of that old life of darkness into light, a, a, that marvelous light. And that's supposed to shine bright and other, other people are supposed to see it and be drawn to that. Amen. So week one, as it was kind of about the process of leadership. Because David was, uh, he was a nobody at first. We all know, if we had any kind of exposure to him, we know his human highlight reel. We know that he was a part of the greatest one-to-one battle in human history, David and Goliath. And so some of us saw that. But few of us have seen some of the behind-the-scenes uh, moments and minutes of his life that led to that great opportunity where he would defeat a giant. And so we've basically been looking at from shepherd boy to shepherd of God's people, what's been going on in the in-between. So most of this series hasn't even done anything to do with his highlights. It's always kind of been the before and the after. Is everybody with me? And so the process of leadership, week one, was about that in-between. And we, we talked about different things that happened in the in-between. And then last week, oh, last week I hit a nerve. Last week I hit a nerve. Like sometimes when we, when we talk about certain things in church, I, can, I, I, I know that it's helpful and I know that it's edifying and useful and builds people up. But sometimes I know like, whoa, this was a timely word. This is something that's going to hit uh, people in a different way. And so we talked about this idea of submission to authority. And, and, and if, how many were here last week? Last week for that message. Okay. If you weren't. Uh, would, you please, would you please consider listening to that? Go on YouTube or, or, or iTunes or, or, or on our website and, and listen to that message because 
Listen, one of, I talk about interpretive keys to life. In other words, there's certain things that if you could see it right, it could affect everything you do. One of the things I always say is if you can see as God sees, you can do as he says. So one of the interpretive keys of life is understanding and applying the principles of authority. If you could see it right. But sometimes we get hung up on the examples or the people that we can't embrace the principles. God's trying to get these things into you. And then when they're into you, you actually can see through a different lens. And you'll experience different outcomes. That's what last week was about. Amen? Couldn't talk about it all because it's a huge subject, but did the best I could in a short period of time. Um, But I think that'll help you a lot. But today, um, we're going to get into not just the good of David. We're going to get into, you know, sometimes you got the good, the bad, the ugly. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the ugly of David. Turn to your neighbor and say, you ugly. No, I don't do that. (laughs) No, but we're going to get into the ugly a little bit. So today's message is called David the Wounded Son. David the Wounded Son. And and why am I calling it that? Because I believe, and I'm going to show you uh, kind of in a little bit of a linear way, that David carried some of his past pain and problems into his adulthood. And it unfortunately affected him and a lot of people in the process. And so the first part of this message, I'm going to kind of show you, um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the pain in David's life and where it came from. And then we're going to unpack how we deal with pain, which is wrong. And then we're going to deal with how we should deal with pain in the process. Is everybody ready for this? Okay, so anyway, you're going to see in just a few minutes here from some uh, things that I say that, that David, though he was a great man, he was a poor father. And so I think it's really relevant, not just because it's Father's Day, but because I have experienced as a sort of a, um, a son, yes, but also as a spiritual father and physical father, that there are a lot of people who have father issues. I think it's a big issue in our world today. And a lot of people uh, have been hurt by their fathers or by, by poor fathering. And David, I believe, loved his kids, but, but he, was a, he was a rich man, but he was a poor dad. And in 2 Samuel... And we won't go through these scriptures, but if you want to on your own, read 2 Samuel chapter 13 all the way through to chapter 18 in devotion. Some of you guys take these notes home, and then you incorporate them into your daily devotions, your daily study. I would recommend that. But I'm going to kind of highlight some things that happen between those chapters, and then we're going to get into some of these things you can take notes on. But in those chapters, there's a story there about three of David's kids. One of them is Amnon, another one Tamar, and then also Absalom. Now, David was the father of all of them, but, uh, but there were different mothers. Um, uh, Amnon um, was, the, was the man uh, or the boy, the son, and then Tamar was the daughter. Uh, and then Absalom and Tamar were actually full brother and sister. Um, but um, but a- Amnon loved his sister Tamar in a sick way. And the Bible records this this longing in his heart to be with his sister Tamar. And, and Amnon uh, loved her in this weird, uh, sick, sexual way. And eventually he forced himself upon her and violated her. And she left that situation totally disgraced. And her full brother, Absalom, took her in and protected her. And then in an effort uh, to, to try to just, you know, to deal with the situation, he, um, he waited for justice. From the father. Now, I don't know about you, but if, 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 if you're a father here and you had a daughter and your son, whether it be half, half or full brother, raped your daughter, how many know as a father you'd be pretty angry about that? Oh, yeah. Like fire. Fire. Like I just start talking about it 
and adrenal is being injected into my veins, just thinking about that, how angry that you could be. But what's interesting is that David's daughter is raped by her son, and he did nothing. He did absolutely nothing. And so Absalom takes up the offense of Tamar, and and he's waiting for David to do something, and there's complete and total silence. And eventually what Absalom does, because there's nothing being done, and he's kind of an activator of sorts, and he takes the law into his own hands, and he kills his brother Amnon. Now, as a result of this criminal act, he flees uh, where he is, and he goes to the province of Geshur, or the, the area of Geshur, and he stays there for three years. So, so this, this is kind of the timeline. Tamar is raped by his, by his brother. Two years passes, and David does nothing. Uh, 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 Absalom's totally upset about that, can't take it anymore, so he takes the law in his own hands, kills his brother, and goes to Gesher, and he's there for three years. So from the original offense, the original violation of the daughter, five years passes by, and what happens with David? He does absolutely nothing. So Joab, the commander of the armies of David, he's watching this soap opera before his eyes, and he's he decides, i got to do something about this, and, and it's kind of some uh, cooperation with Absalom. And he gets this woman to agree to go before the king, King David, with this fictitious story of her having two sons, and one of the sons kills the other son. And the goal was to try to get David to see, see this situation? That's your situation. And he wanted uh, they wanted him to take pity on her. And sure enough, David does. He hears this story. He takes pity on her. And then something happens, like the light bulb comes on. He gets it. He realizes what's going on here. And so as a result, he says, go get Absalom. Bring him home to me. Okay, looks like we're getting some things going here. And then Absalom comes back from being exiled, supposedly to go see David, comes back to the city, and David doesn't talk to him for another three years. Nothing. Seven uh, uh, years pass, uh, and, and there's no contact between David and his son Absalom. Now, Absalom's like just, he can't handle this. I actually believe we look at Absalom, if you know anything about him, and we see he was a bad son, and he did a lot of egregious things. It's horrible. But I think he's probably a pretty good kid at first. He just couldn't handle the silence of his father. And so Absalom is, is there. He's called back, supposedly to get audience with his dad, start talking and working through some things and reconciling some things, and nothing's happening. And so uh, Absalom decides to take, again, the law into his own hands. And to get some attention, he goes to Joab's house, and he burns Joab's fields. Thinks, I'll, I'll get things fired up. I'm going to light a fire at Joab's house, jo- Joab's house, because every time I call the home office to try to talk to my father, I keep getting a busy signal. Nobody's replying. Nobody's getting back to me with my calls. So Joab goes back to David and says, dude, excuse me, back to Absalom. Dude, what are you doing? Absalom's like, hey, why'd you call me home? What's the whole point of me coming back home and just to be ignored? Nobody's talking to me. So yeah, I lit it up. <laughs> And so he's like, okay, okay, okay. So Joab goes to David, tells him what happened. David says, bring him to me. I'm ready. But it's too late. At this point, Absalom's at tilt. He's so furious, it's irreconcilable at this particular point. And Absalom leads a full-scale rebellion against his father with many followers and nearly succeeds in killing his father and taking over the kingdom. It doesn't happen. Absalom dies 
but he does humiliate his father in the process. During this entire seven-year period, David does nothing. Nothing. And I want to ask a question, and then I'm going to try to answer it. Because I think we have certain assumptions, but I think sometimes those assumptions are defaults, but not necessarily right. They might have a fault in them. Why was David such a poor father? Whenever you see some poor behavior in your sphere of influence, when you look around, you assume there's got to be some reason for that. When you see somebody acting a certain way and it's not good and it's toxic or it's negative or whatever it is, you all, I think you all think like I think, there's got to be a story behind that. Now, sometimes we get fired up about what they're doing, but if we kind of calm ourselves, we're like, you know what, they're probably, we would say, a product of their environment. Wouldn't that be a common thought that we have, yes or no? And I think that's very understandable. There's got to be a story. What would that story be for David? So I started thinking about what would the story be for David, and I think that the pain that was from his childhood uh, when he got into adulthood, he just never, he could never shake it. And yet, I, I think it's understandable. In other words, we looked at this last week a little bit and the week before, but David was, the old, uh, was one of uh, eight sons. We only hear about seven. Uh, Jesse, uh, whenever, I, whenever I hear Jesse in the Bible, I always think of like Jesse from Dukes of Hazard. I don't know why that is, but anyway, it's just, just the thing that I think of, and somehow he had some beautiful kids. But, um, but Jesse uh, had 10 kids, actually. He had two daughters. Nobody talks about that. Sorry, ladies. But there were seven sons that were talked about, but David was the eighth son. And David's father fundamentally rejected him. He didn't get a lot of attention from his father. In fact, there was this incredible occasion where David was to be anointed to be king, which would be, in your family, like the biggest event you could possibly imagine for your family. It would be like being on The Voice or America's Got Talent and everybody in the whole world seeing it at the same time. It would be epic. David wasn't even invited. And what's worse, and we can see from the scripture, is that he was in earshot, even visually, probably able to see this huge occasion where all Jesse's sons are being lined up and David's not even there and he knows what's going on. Jesse doesn't even invite him. In fact, when Samuel is getting ready to anoint him to be, uh, to be king, look what he says in, uh, I don't know if this is in your notes, but 1 Samuel 16, 10, Jesse has seven of his sons passed by Samuel, and it says, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel says to Jesse, are these young men here? Uh, are these all we got? And, and, and then the father says, yeah, there's one more, but he's out, you know, he's out tending the sheep like I told him to. And Samuel says to Jesse, bring him to me. We won't even sit down until he's here. So he, so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn and anointed him with oil in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came on him from that day forward. So you think the fact that your father wouldn't include you in the biggest day of your family's life reject you a little bit? Might have had a little effect on somebody, especially if you're you're out there doing what he told you to do, and you can see what's happening off in the distance. You can see that from the context of the scripture. And then the one person that believed in David, Samuel, he dies right after uh, David's anointed king. So his father rejects him. His, his, his one advocate dies. And then you would think that some of that weight, that responsibility that, to build you up and to support you and care for you and protect you would fall upon the eldest son. So the elder brother, Eliab, look what his attitude is towards David. In 1 Samuel 17, 28, it says, this is when David goes to the battle lines. Remember this from previous messages. He's bringing bread and cheese. I call it pizza. He was the pizza delivery boy. Come on. 
And while he's there delivering pizza, he's going around saying, who's this Philistine? What school does he think he is? I can take him out. And his brother hears about it, and this is what his brother says. This is all, by the way, within the context of war. And, and after being rejected by his father, and after knowing that he's going to be king, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. He's listening to David. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? I think I'd like to add, you punk. And with whom have you left those few sheep? I know you, take, you do something. You do a little something. Take care of a few sheep in the wilderness. He says, look at it. He cuts to the heart. He says, I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down here to see the battle. In other words, you and I know what it's like to have people. The people that are closest to us can hurt us the most, can't they? In other words, I could say something like that to somebody, but if somebody in your immediate family says something like to you, like that cuts like a knife. It stings like the bite of a snake. And that's exactly what David's experiencing. His father rejects him. Uh, his mentor dies. His elder brother uh, rejects him in, uh, when he should really be the big brothering moment of his life. No. Then King Saul, the one he's going to ultimately replace, the one he should look up to as a mentor, the one that should lead him. Uh, basically what happens is David, eventually, as you know, the highlight, he kills this, this, this nine-foot, seven-inch giant. It's an amazing feat. And then after that, there's basically this, this number one song on the, on the charts that comes out. It's all over the radio, and it's basically, it could have been called 10,000 Reasons, but uh, we love David. But basically, it, it, David didn't have a band, so don't get any ideas. But basically, everybody starts singing, Saul's killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And that's number one on the charts. And everybody's singing it, and Saul gets fired up about it. He's like, what was this stupid song? Shut that radio off. And, and, he's, and he's, because he's insecure and he's jealous. And as a result, he, want, he goes to persecute David and eventually, and multiple times, tries to kill him. What's the point of all this? David never had a positive role model. He never had a positive father or father figure in his life. Every close male authority or figure in his life rejected him. And so with all this, it's obvious that as a parent, how can you give away what you've never received? That's what I would conclude. That's what I would think, wouldn't you? Yes or no? So, so here's where I'm going. Is all of this the main reason that David was a bad father? I think we'd all think immediately yes, but I want to submit to you, no, it's not. It's not the reason David was a bad father. David was a bad father because he would not deal with his pain. The reason sometimes we struggle to embrace the greatness that's inside each and every one of us is because we won't deal with our pain. Because like David, you're like David. You all have pain. I have pain. We all have pain. All God's children have pain. The reason some people do great things is because of their ability to overcome that pain and deal with that pain. Here's your big idea. Write this down. Every great man and woman has to rise above the pain of their past to reach their God-given destiny. Everybody that is going to experience the greatness grenade inside each and every one of us, you have to get out of the rearview mirror. You have to stop living in your yesterdays in order to face your tomorrows. You cannot live in pain. You cannot sit there and do nothing with your pain. We all have pain. David just sat there in silence. And just this is strong for the men, and I hope you can receive this today. Um, and I'm going to say it anyway, but listen, there's no such thing as the strong, silent type. There's no, that's a myth. It's the weak, silent type. Strong people 
face the music. Strong people talk about it. They get it out. They don't just sit there and soak and soak and think they're, they're, they're being some kind of a martyr. No, there's no such thing as the strong, silent type. We have to open up. We have to let light into darkness. We have to get this out of us, and we can't sour in our pain and bathe in our hurt. David, that was his problem in this area. In other areas, he was a great man, but in this area, he was just frozen in his pain. He wasn't a bad father because of all these things. He was a bad father because he wouldn't deal with it, whether it was Eliab, Saul, his father, whoever. So you can be great as long as you're willing to deal with your pain. What is your pain? I was thinking about all the kinds of things. I mean, you could just list things. Divorce, the results of divorce. I get it. I get it. It's painful. Uh, You know, abandonment, adultery, abuse, loneliness, emotional uh, pain, social rejection, family and friends rejection, physical uh, calamity. All kinds of things have happened to us. No one cares about us. Maybe loneliness and, and rejection. All of this causes pain. Yes, Jesus even had pain, lots of pain. And as a child, sometimes we can't deal with our pain. Uh, We can't deal with our pain better than our parents did, really, as a child. In fact, we typically repeat what we watched and what we saw. We do some of the same things that our parents did. You know, so for for me, I don't know what's people, be tough, don't cry, push it down, keep it, keep it over here. Bury it, bury it, bury it. Don't show weakness. Don't never let them see you sweat. David might have been like this because of what he saw. Maybe that's what his father was like. And so David's family, as a result, is imploding and because he wouldn't talk about it. You think in seven years he could have had somebody he could have gone to, a priest, a mentor, a father. What's interesting is your father, uh, biological father, might be failing you, but you know, we serve such a loving God, he'll always bring spiritual fathers into our life. He'll always bring other role models and big brothers into our life. Even when all the Eliabs of our life are failing us, he'll always have another big brother. But sometimes we're not seeing right under our nose. God has provided for you a family to support you and build you up. But because we're soaking in our pain, we're not talking about it. We don't see that God has ways for us to be healed. Can I have an amen? So here are the common but non-curing things people do with their pain. Number one, they medicate it. I think David's family was a family of medicators. What does that look like? Well, for some, it's... It's, it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's sex, it's entertainment, it's gambling, it's food. Whatever it is, David's family were medicators. And some of us uh, can handle some of these things. Some of these things aren't even wrong in moderation. In other words, if you put alcohol in front of a healthy person, rarely will a healthy person abuse alcohol. If you put uh, food, choice food, in front of a, a healthy person, rarely will a healthy person abuse it. Uh, whatever it is, if you have a healthy person, the problem is not the problem. In other words, we're focusing on the wrong, oh, the problem's gambling, oh, the problem's alcohol, oh, the problem is, is entertainment, too much entertainment. The problem. No, 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 that's usually not the problem. We're calling that the problem, but that's not the problem. The problem is beneath the problem. Is everybody with me? The substance, in other words, isn't the problem. People in this situation sometimes miss that that's just medicating my problem. It's anesthetizing my problem, and it's temporary. Sin has pleasure for a season. It just simply anesthetizes you for a moment, but when we come out of that, the problem has been compounded, has it not? It's, it's the cords of sin wrap around one more time, just slowly beginning to suffocate you. That's the goal of sin and iniquity. And so when you try uh, to make gambling, sex, alcohol, entertainment, food, whatever it is, the problem, you're missing the point. And the church has done this horribly. 
confessions of a pastor from a church, the church, generally speaking, sometimes misses the point. We're saying, you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that, and you shouldn't do this. And I'm not saying those things are right. I'm just saying we're focused on the wrong thing. We're missing the point. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. That's not, that's not the focus. Listen, people who are healed, people who are whole, they won't do those things. Let's, instead of focusing on what they shouldn't do, focus on getting people healthy and whole from the inside out so the fruit that's manifested is a result of the root that we poured into and invested in. Amen? So, so, so AA, for example, just a program some of you have been a part of. Praise God for that. I think there, there are good things with inside that. But their first step is to get honest. Fess up. Admit you have a problem. You know what? It's the same is true in the economy of God. You can look in Scripture. Nobody gets healed that won't admit it. Actually, God delivering us from certain things, that's the easy part. There's power in the name of Jesus to deliver us. The problem is we won't admit we have a problem. And we won't identify the real problem, the real causes of our pain, because we're medicating them. David's family categorically had sexual problems. David had sexual problems. We can see that from... Uh, you know, when he, was, when he was staying behind, instead of going out to war, he, he sinned with Bathsheba. Long story that Amnon, his son, had serious sexual problems. This is what happens. When we don't deal with our problems, they get worse in the next generation. The Bible says the sins of the father visit to the third and to the fourth generation. And so the sin that we want, the pain we won't deal with manifests in sin, and that sin is compounded in the next generation. That's why we have to men deal with our problems. And mothers and fathers and, and brothers and sisters, that's why we have to deal with our pain because there's a whole generation after us that is, it's critical that we set them up for success and not for failure. But Amnon had some serious problems. Solomon had sexual problems. Solomon had a thousand wives. A hundred, two hundred, okay, but a thousand. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Solomon had issues. See, what, what kind of issue could Solomon have? He was the most famous person in the earth. You know, he had more money than anybody. He had more wisdom than anybody and all those kind of things. He was the son of an adulterer. That had to be tough. And, and he was a, a product of adultery in the spotlight. See, some of you have, you're the product of some sin and it's been passed down and inflicted upon you, but, but you ain't on TV every day. That's what, he, that's what his life was. And so how did he medicate it with the thousand wives? How many know that might have compounded the problem just a little bit? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, how do you do that? You got to get an administrator to, like, organize your relational schedule? Let's see, uh, five today, four tomorrow. I mean, it must have been crazy, like, complicated. By the way, you don't even need the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, to know that sex outside of marriage is complicated. It's complicated and confusing. <laughs> So he medicated it with women, but it didn't work out. Number two, they motivate it. Write that down. They motivate it. You just get busy. You don't slow down. You put your nose to the grindstone. So what? So you can't feel your pain. This is, this is, this is, this is my default. This is, the, this is my fault and default. This is the part that I have had to work on all my life. I actually like to work. Why do I like to work? Because it masks my pain. Because I don't have to feel it. I'm just going to run. I'm just going to run. I'm just going to run so hard. You can't even, you just can't even feel anything. And that's Solomon's problem. He was building, building, building things and temples and all kinds of stuff. And people seeing him all the time. Probably had meetings because people coming from all over the world to see and hear from him and all his wisdom. And at the Ecclesiastes, he gets to the end of the whole thing and he says, it's vanity. It's all vanity. Striving after the wind. What was it worth? Nothing. Nothing. It's a Martha spirit. 
In the New Testament, we see that. And some of y'all, as my wife would say, have that problem. You, 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 you miss the point. Martha is running around the house doing stuff, and it seems important to her, but she's, she's masking her pain while Mary's at the feet of Jesus. Martha comes, tries to expose Mary, and, you know, she's deadbeat. She won't help around with all the problems. And Jesus, and Jesus calls her out and says, Woo, hey, sister. You're missing the point. She's chosen the eternal things as above these earthly things. And that's the problem with people who motivate it. We're moving so fast, we're missing the point in the process. There is time to work, but there's time to sit down. There's a difference between diligence and drivenness. Diligence is, yeah, you work hard, but you can stop. Drivenness is you never stop. You're a shark, and if you, don't, if you stop moving, you won't breathe. See, we need to get out of drivenness into diligence. Because if you don't stop, let me tell you something that I learned and I'm learning, you'll be forced to stop. And sometimes that may be what's necessary for some of us in this room because the things that hurt us most can sometimes instruct us most. I came out of some pain and realized that, you know what, God's okay with me working hard, but I better play hard too once in a while with some regularity and some routine to that and some, and some, and some uh, patterns for that. But people don't want to talk about pain. I was, had a guy in my office recently, and all the stuff on the surface said, this is the problem, and, I'm, and I could realize, and I could see very clear that wasn't a problem, and I called out the pain, and he said, you can help me with this, Pastor, but I'm not going there. I said, well, then we can't go where we need to go then until you'll go there. See, that's, that's where some of us are. We're like, you can help me with this. You can help me manage my schedule. You can help me kind of reorganize this. You can tell me a few things over here. I'm good with that categorically. But don't talk to me about that. I'm not going there. And see, church should be a place where in order to grow here, sometimes you have to go there. There. And you have to have a little heart surgery once in a while. And some of us aren't willing to have heart surgery. And as a result, we're not experiencing the greatness that God has for each and every one of us. And here's the cool thing about God and the thing that I hate too about God. God's love is boundless. It knows no bounds, no limits. But you know what else about God? He has no boundaries. In other words, in other words he never read the book Boundaries. <laughs> he, he doesn't respect these walls that I put up. Basically, anytime, so I'm going to use the motivator side for me. Anytime I stop, he starts knocking. Derek, can we talk? And you know what he wants to talk about? That thing. You, you know what I'm talking about right now. So when you stop medicating it, no boundaries. God's ripped. He's knocking on your door. When you stop motivating it, hey, Derek, can we talk about that? 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 Shut up, God. <laughs> Heisman, Holy Ghost. That's what we do. God's going to keep coming because he wants you healthy and he wants you whole. He wants to see you set free. Here's the third thing we do. They meditate it. Are you getting something out of this, anybody? They meditate it. This is perhaps the most insidious and dangerous one of all. This is where you stew and you brood and you, 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 you get to a point where you're seething about something. And if you're just thinking about and constantly thinking about something or someone that has done something to you a long time ago, far away, in a galaxy far away, then it's not them, it's you. The issue is not them, it's you. And, and people who meditate on things that happened a long time, they're miserable, and they're dysfunctional. Let me just tell you something. You usually can't even see it, but you're, 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 it's, it's, like, this, you know, it's like somebody who passed gas in a room. 
I know this is a terrible illustration, but it just kind of, you're sending everybody out of the room because that'll, that'll stick. I mean, that'll stink. Either way, you'll remember. But that's what happens. See, Absalom was a meditator. For two years, instead of going to his dad or making it happen, for two years, he just waited for his father. Why is my father talking? Why is my father talking? And over time, because frustration, frustration leads to disappointment. Disappointment leads to, to, to discord and hatred. It just keeps, it becomes, in, becomes a poison in his soul. And then he murders his brother, and he's like, nothing happened because of that. And, and now he's getting even angrier and angrier. And Satan uses this poison. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, it says, in, in your anger, do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, because you don't want to give the devil a foothold into your life. That's what happens when you uh, meditate on something poisonous, something, something that went wrong in your life. It eventually, a foothold will become a stronghold in your life. Now the enemy's got a foot into your life, and he will begin to pry his way into every other area of your life that you think you're, that you're succeeding in. He'll eventually start to take that over, and like weeds, he'll begin to destroy the lawn of your life. And we're usually, we usually have a bent towards one of these things, motivating, meditating, when, all, when you allow this to happen, basically this, this insidious thing to get into your life, uh, then, then, then this word devil in this particular verse, it mean, Diablo, it basically means slanderer. The devil slanders you. He convinces you of something that is not true about someone. And, they, and basically you form, when you, when you begin to brood and stew on these things, it actually be, it forms deception in your life. You actually form an alliance with Diablo. He slanders truth and gets you to believe something that's not true. Truth becomes hatred. Hatred is oftentimes built on a lie. It, it makes you do some really stupid things. Sin makes you stupid. That's tweetable. Sin will make you stupid. In other words... This, this thing, when that gets in your life, it'll, you'll think you're right, but you're very wrong. You're upset about something someone else has done a long, long time ago. You're holding them captive, but really, you're the one who's captive. You think they're wrong. You're very wrong. It's, it's a foothold, and this spirit of Diablo, it's slandering you, and you're forming a kindred spirit with a lying spirit. Ooh, this is good. I... I'm enjoying this. Anyway, so, so Absalom did this to his father. So now what? What do we do? How do we overcome these things? Are you ready for this? What do great women and men do of the pain of their past? Number one, they face it. They face it. Now, the Apostle Paul is a phenomenal example of someone with a past who faced his past and overcame it. In Philippians, I'm going to paraphrase a few of these things, but, but, but you need to know that he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was this elite religious group of people that on the outside looked like they were all good, but they, the Bible, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. In, in, in their hearts, it was just all messed up. Just, just bones and den of thieves and tomb. It's just bad stuff all inside them. And that's really, it manifested because whatever's in the heart comes out. And so they were, they were unloving, they were uncaring, they were performance-based. They, 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 just people you never want to meet. They were mean as snakes. They were meaner than a junkyard dog. I had a pastor who was in Jerusalem uh, years, not too long ago, but he was preaching there. And the ancestors of the Pharisees, these Orthodox Jews, lived in, in a certain province of Jerusalem. And if you were to drive through their community on the Sabbath, you could get, you could get really banged up. In fact, he said, don't go through there. Today's the Sabbath. They'll flip your car. These are the, these are the people who are like, you know, ancestors of 
these Pharisees that are trying to uphold the law and keep all the rules. You go through there, they'll flip your car. So, so Paul was one of these guys. And, and he realizes he's made some mistakes. So instead of just hiding it, ducking, bob and weave, he just gets it out. He faces it. He puts it all out there. And in Philippians, he basically says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I, I was one of these people from this particular tribe. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I kept the law. I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, yeah, I persecuted Christians. I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, oh, yeah, I kept all the rules. He's saying, I was one of the best of the best, but I was one of the worst of the worst. And I decided to get it out. And you can never be blackmailed from what you'll reveal yourself. And some of you are being blackmailed by the enemy because you're holding it in darkness. And you need to know that the enemy has jurisdiction over darkness. Darkness is the devil's property. You can never kick the devil out of his own property. So in order to get darkness out of you, you have to put light into you. And so God is outside going, just open the door, just open the door, just open the door. If you just let a little light in, God is light, and in him is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He, you let a little bit of God's light, he will expose darkness to light, and you can be set free. That's why the Bible says the truth that you know will set you free. Uh, fundamentally, what that means is put light on darkness. Open up, expose it, face the music on that. And so Paul faces these shameful things, and then God shows him a formula to be used to help other people. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and following, he says, Paul speaking, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our tribulation. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, God's going to take, and he did this for Paul, he's going to take his past mistakes. When we face them, he'll redeem them to use them to help other people. There's nothing like being helped from a person who's overcome in an area that you're struggling with. Yes or no? Okay? So God wants to take, if you look at people with some of the greatest ministries on planet Earth today or in the Bible, it's because God has taken the scars of their past, the pain of their past, and used it for good. That's fundamentally what he does over and over and over again. I've counseled people whose marriages have, they were imploding, they were exploding. It was over, it was done. We're getting ready to, to, to write the, the, the prescription for divorce. And I used Stacy and I's failures and basically said, here's where we were before we faced the music. Here's where we are now. And listen to this, uh, 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 ma'am. Listen to this, sir. God's going to take this problem, and I'm going to introduce you to a bigger problem because he's going to do something in you that later on he's going to use through you to help other people. And they look at me, oh, no, he's not, no, he's not. I say, oh, yeah, I want you to see something bigger. God's going to comfort you now in this situation like he did for me and Stacy in my situation, and then you're going to be able to comfort other people. And to the extent that they received that and faced the music on that, those couples stayed together, grew together, and now are helping other couples. In fact, some of my counselors in this church came through some of the greatest tragedies in crisis because they faced Amen. their past and their shameful mistakes. And greatness is in all of us if we'll face our pain. Amen? So... They wouldn't even let Paul into church services without the apostles' help because he was a bad dude. But God used him. How did God use him? So many ways. He, he did all the study as a Pharisee. So, so now does he have to throw all that away? No. Before he did it to, to, to build himself up. The Bible says knowledge puffeth up, but love builded, buildeth up. 1 Corinthians, I think, 8. 
And so now, because he's faced his past, because he's come out with his shameful mistakes, now God takes all of that passion, all of that desire to be able to teach, and he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. A Christian killer, a persecutor of the church, writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Why is Paul any different than us? He's not only to the extent that he faced his past and he faced his pain. Amen? Number two, great people forgive and forget. Great people forgive and forget. And I don't want you to misinterpret that, and I'll explain this. But Paul, once again, in Philippians 3, says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Everybody say, forget what is behind. That means you and I have to stop living, looking through the rearview mirror of our lives. You have to stop living You have to deal with your yesterdays. You just can't live in your yesterdays. The Bible says forgetting what is behind. Ain't nothing good coming out of your behind. Okay, everybody? Stop looking back. Stop looking back. Start looking forward, the Bible says. But forgetting does not mean, listen, forgetting does not mean we erase our memory. That's not what forgetting is or a past or anything. Forgetting means I ignore it. You want to write that down. Forgetting means you ignore your past. Forgive and forget. You're obligated to forgive as a Christ follower. What are you talking about? The Bible says it everywhere. If you want to be forgiven, you're going to have to forgive. You can't be saved unless you've received God's forgiveness for you. You can't have forgiveness again unless you forgive others according to God's word. Colossians 3, Ephesians 4. It's all over the place in Matthew 18. You'll be turned over to the tormentors. You'll have demonic strongholds come into your life if you don't forgive. So we're all obligated to forgive. But forget, that means you just ignore the past. You just, nope, mm mm-mm. If there's something you're going to say no to, say no to your past and how it's trying to poison your future. But forgiveness is one of those big steps in receiving greatness, but also overcoming our past. This is in your notes. Until you let the past die, you cannot let the future live. It's huge. Forgiveness of others doesn't just make them make what they did right now. No, it just makes you free. It makes you free. The last point, number three, everybody write this down. The last thing that people who want to experience greatness, man, woman, boy, or girl, is they follow Jesus away from their pain. They follow Jesus away from their pain. This is big because really in David's life, what I love about him is the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Isn't that right? So here's a guy who did some really bad stuff. This guy was a poor father. This is a guy who, who murdered somebody. This is a guy who committed adultery. Hello. I bet nobody in here has done all three of those. Okay? Maybe not even one of those. And yet God says he was a man of his own heart. Because the only redemption of David's life and yours is, in, is found in relationship with God. That's the only way to redeem your past is to embrace a relationship. And I'm not just talking about, say, a prayer. I'm talking about become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And what's awesome about Jesus, what's awesome about relationship with God is you can decide at any moment with this muscle that you have. It's called free will. It is the most powerful muscle in your body is free will. You can decide to turn to God and, and ask him for help with whatever you're dealing with. You don't, have to, you don't have to do a bunch of things, uh, fix a few things before you can stop, drop, and commit your life to Jesus Christ and turn to him. Just ask God for help. God, I want to follow you. I need help. Uh, my life's a mess. This pain is overcoming me. And if you can't handle whatever it is you're dealing with, uh, then you're a, you're a prime candidate for the supernatural intervention of God. 
That's actually the great disposition and condition to be in is the realization, I can't handle it. Instead of just bury it, deny it, live in silence with it. No, you come out and say, God, I cannot deal with this. You know what? That's when God shows himself so strong and so powerful and so faithful is when you come to him with that childlike faith. Amen? So write this down. Your last thing to fill in is your past and the pain of it will never be resolved. Never be resolved until you are in relationship with Jesus. And I would submit to you and with others. That's why we have small groups. I want to encourage you to connect in small groups today. We have 30 of them for you to connect in this summer, and I recommend that you do that. But David was not a poor dad because of what happened to him. David was a poor dad because he wouldn't deal with it. And so as we conclude, I'm going to ask you to put your notes away. I want to pray for you right where you are. And would you just be very still and attentive, but at the same time, close your eyes. Would you all just close your eyes for the people that are around you? And I'm going to ask the prayer team to come down right now. Um, but this might be a little raw for some of you listening to a message like this on Father's Day. And, and, and I thought about that. I thought about bringing something that would, would make you feel better. But I can't think of anything that would make you feel better than sometimes uh, dealing with root issues. There's sometimes I go to the doctor and I don't like what he does, but afterwards I feel better. Sometimes I've been to a chiropractor and I didn't like what they did to get me there. But man, when that adjustment was over, I felt better. I pray in Jesus' name for a spiritual chiropractic moment for some of you in this room today because some of you are experiencing pain because it was inflicted upon you some of it because it's self-inflicted you brought it upon yourself and I would say to you sir, man, boy, or girl this is your opportunity to learn from David and not sit in silence get around some people that can help you overcome your pain go to God and ask him for help with your pain you might be there right now and as you're sitting in your seat you might need to just say to Jesus and, and just whisper to him Lord I'm, I'm willing to go there. I haven't been, but I'm willing to go there. If you'll make a decision of your will, and you say that with your mouth, something's going to begin to happen inside of you. When you begin to admit that you need help, that you're willing to go there, God will begin to orchestrate, almost supernaturally, connections and opportunities for you to be healed. Maybe you need to be here today like Absalom. You, you decide to stop seething in Uh, the sin of someone else, the mistakes from someone in the past, and you're not going to sit in hatred any longer or unforgiveness any longer. You're not going to let it go on another day, another month, maybe another year in some cases. You're going to turn it over to God, justice and vengeance, as he says, vengeance is mine. And lastly, you're going to become a truly devoted follower of God. And so I'm going to pray for every person that needs ministry in that area. If something in this message touched your heart in some way, I'd like you to raise your hand. Just acknowledge that, that that's me, and I, and I, want, I want to receive what God has for me today. God bless you. While your hands are extended, I'm just going to pray. Father, in Jesus' name, for every person who with their hands raised like an antenna needs ministry by the Holy Spirit through this message, would you touch every single individual in an individual way, personal way, set them free, God. Help them to face their pain. Help them to forgive and forget where they need to. Help them, Lord God, to truly become a follower in relationship with you. Walk away from this pain and move into the greatness that God has for them. And it's in Jesus' precious name I pray. And all God's church said, amen and amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a big hand clap around the room. God bless you.